Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I want to thank my sponsors, Topps, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins & Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So here's uh, an episode for your listening enjoyment. I'm looking at a young guy here, and I'm just thinking, just like for me, do people think you should be older based on all the experience <laughs> you have? You've got... Three decades in the industry, people, three decades gets you the gold watch in a lot of industries. Do people perceive that you are a boy wonder or you should be much older or anything like that? Because you've done it all. Yeah, this industry, as much as I love it, has definitely put some wrinkles on me. Caused me probably to lose some of the hair I've lost. But uh, yeah, I think back and I, th- it's amazing to think when you do the math, when you try to calculate what year something came out of some of those numbers, Jim, get very depressing, especially now with this resurgence of so many of the things from the 90s. I think about how long ago and some of that stuff, we're talking 25 years. It's mind-blowing. And people who are really getting into collecting that stuff now, they talk about how, whether it be the pandemic or whatever nostalgia kicks in, it reminds them of when they were a kid, when they were eight, nine, 10 years old. I'm thinking to myself, Wow. I was very much an adult when I was working on those things. It's pretty cool. Look, I'm fortunate. I understand. I have a very rare set of uh, credentials in this industry. I've been a show dealer. I've been a shop owner. I've worked at a hobby distributor and a couple of manufacturers. I don't know how many people can say that. And as much as it does make me feel old, it also gives me a, a pretty unique advantage and skill set. There's not a day that goes by where I don't use what I've learned from every one of those stops. Back in the 90s, when I was a part of the product development team at FLIR, quarterly, the group of us would come down to Dallas and we'd meet with your team and we'd present a quarter's worth of products. We'd spend the whole day there with your price guide team, the analysts and things, and we would present to them. And I have to tell you, that was always one of my favorite times. And we used to get such tremendous feedback and bounce ideas off of each other. And a lot of those people are still very important, involved people in this industry. Some of the things that came out of those meetings were really important concepts and products that to this day are revered and still used in the industry. You used to sit in a little bit, you'd come in and and spend a little bit of time with us. When I think back to certain memories, those are very strong, positive memories for me. I intentionally was not at most of those meetings. I'd be there for a little while, but I noticed when I was at Upper Deck meetings, when Richard was there as the owner, the boss, we cast a long shadow. And I thought I probably cast a long shadow in a different way as well. So if I'm in the room, they're going to look to me, perhaps. And these guys were really sharp in their own right. They didn't need any permission from me or guidance. I just thought they would come out, give you their best shot. And I think they really did. And if I was there... They'd be thinking about the chain of command. And I really trusted my guys. And I think they appreciated that. I love brainstorming meetings, but I just noticed when I was in meetings with Richard, if Richard said, I'm leaning this way, then everybody leaned that way. And I didn't want to be that, even though I'm sure I did the same thing at times. So to not be there very much and allow those guys' excellence to shine through. I'm glad it was well-received. Not every company did it on the same frequency. Every company did it to some degree. I feel bad. You're saying how great it was, and then you were bankrupt a number of years later. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, I don't know That's that. why I thought maybe the cost structure, there were some great products there, but maybe the cost structure for FLIR, Ultra, Skybox, those great products, they just didn't sell enough at enough margin to cover these amazing arena designs and other things that y'all were doing. Back to that, Jimmy, I was put in charge of product development in 
I want to say late 97, early 98 at FLIR. I was a relatively young guy back then. was not overly knowledgeable about P&Ls and uh, margin requirements and costs and this and that. I just knew cards. I lived cards. I breathed cards. And I just wanted to build product. And I was lucky. I had a great, knowledgeable, driven team. You mentioned Arena Design. To this day, I'm still very close friends with Jean McLeod. She's doing work with us at Upper Deck now, which I'm just over the moon about. And so my task there was to build product. The financial part, I left to the financial people to figure out. And if we were doing something that was overboard, then someone needed to tell me. But in the meantime, we were building product that people wanted. And I look back at some of the things we did in the 90s, resonating with people today. You should be proud. Yeah, I am. Absolutely. Do I know a lot more about those things now with a lot more experience and knowledge? Absolutely. But we put down some concepts and some ideas and some designs and they're hard to replicate. Even today with all the technology and how it's progressed and everything, there was probably a decent cost attached to it doing all that. But we didn't really know from that. We were just trying to build what we thought collectors would really appreciate and collect and find interesting. But yeah, from a cost standpoint, I'm not sure that was great. But, I, but I'll tell you, we came out of those meetings, like I said, with some concepts that still to this day are used. Those were great meetings. And one of your key guys in those meetings on the Beckett side, Grant Sandground, yeah. he runs product development for us at Upper Deck. I've worked with Grant now for 25 years. So a brilliant guy and continues going as strong as ever, heading up our team and building tremendous products. So another lifer there for sure. But no, I just think you're admitting to what I'm saying that in these meetings and in your creativity, there are additional complications of the product that cost some margin points, but delighted customers, but perhaps not enough of them. I just think when I'm looking back and I compare some of the leadership of the companies back in those days, and there were so many companies, Richard McWilliam knew how to make money more so than some of the others. I think he understood the long-term, what you said, the straddling, making money now, but also laying up for the future and building a brand and building a legacy. He was able to do that at that same time frame that FLIR was not. When I first started Upper Deck, the industry was still going through a tumultuous time. Like you mentioned, a lot of companies and then shedding a lot of companies too on an annual basis. One thing that kept Upper Deck going, having all four sports is it always seemed, especially in those early 2000s, there was one sport that was just hitting on all cylinders when the others were not. So if you think back like in 01, baseball was just unbelievable in 01. And that really carried us. And then you had 034 with LeBron's rookie year in that rookie class. And then 05-06 with Crosby and Ovechkin. We always had these years that would bridge us to the next where we had a sport that was just tremendous. But all that time, you mentioned Richard and his ability. We were always eyes wide open looking for other opportunities, as good or bad as things may be on a given year. One thing I love and continue to love about Upper Deck uh, is that we're never, ever resting on our laurels, are content with what we have. We're constantly pushing barriers, looking for new things. Our president of our company now, Jason Mashra, he is the epitome of that. It's why I think we continue to make strides. We're just constantly looking for things, eyes wide open, concentrating really hard and appreciating what we have and continuing to improve as much as we can, but also always looking for other opportunities. Who are some of the best bosses you've had? Who are some of the people you've really learned from over the years, either working directly for them or working with them? There's a number of them. I obviously owe a lot to Steve Snyder, who is one of the principals at GTS Distribution. He and his family owned a company called Heroes World back in the early 90s. Uh, And they were the largest 
distributor of trading cards for a time there. Primary business was comic book distribution, which was why they were ultimately bought by Marvel. But Steve gave me my start there and he allowed me to run the trading card division. I learned an unbelievable amount about not only product content, because I opened everything we got, every product that came out, but it exposed me to the wholesale side of the business dealing with and developing relationships with various shops. So Steve was a tremendous influence. And then as we transferred to Fleer, he introduced me to Jeff Kaplan, brilliant man who was behind the purchase of Fleer back in the day and just a super guy. Very grateful to have worked for him, albeit a short period of time. Then my favorite boss to work for at Fleer back in the day, if you remember, was a guy named Bill Bordigan. And Bill was just a tremendously positive, full of energy, really fun to work for. Look forward to coming to work every day and making product. He came over from Skybox and brought a great positive energy and really enjoyed working for him. Back in those days, those were the people who really had a lot of influence on me. Obviously, at Upper Deck, I've had a number of people that I've been able to work for and learn from, from a whole new perspective. Upper Deck was such a different company, a larger company, a West Coast company. So you got a little bit of a different sort of mentality and attitude. But I get to work for, as I mentioned, Jason Masher, our president now, who probably of all the people I've worked with has the most similar background than I do. He's the president of a trading card company, and he actually had his own hobby shop as well. So you have the president and the EVP of Upper Deck who both owned hobby shops. I think that gives us an advantage, a tremendous perspective and a true appreciation of what a shop owner goes through, what the consumer is looking for, really helps us doing our day-to-day job here at Upper Deck. What I was thinking is that when you work for Upper Deck, which has been a long time now, and Richard was there for the most part of that, but did you ever feel like you worked for Richard or for the president that Richard had? Because in my company, I had other presidents or executive vice presidents and people reported to them, but I was the bottom line. So did you feel like you worked for Richard or the succession of presidents that came in that? Well, you ultimately worked for Richard. And I don't omit Richard when you ask me that last question for any other reason other than, and now, to your point, I actually reported to Richard for a very short period of time. But I learned an awful lot from Richard just about business. People didn't always agree with some of the things he did and some of the methods. I didn't always agree with them. But frankly, you knew where you stood. One of the things I think that gave me, I don't know if it's an advantage, but uh, certainly respect from Richard was there were an awful lot of people who told Richard what he wanted to hear or they thought he wanted to hear, or maybe they were afraid to tell him what the truth was. It wasn't like that. I went in and my interactions with Richard were always like, look, I'm going to tell him like it is. I'm not going to tell him something so that he doesn't get upset or that's untrue. I was always very honest with Richard. And I think I earned an extra level of respect from Richard for that. And probably a good portion of the reason I lasted as long as I did working with Richard. I think that really helped uh, quite a bit. When you work at Upper Deck, whether you report directly to Richard or not, there's always a sense that you work for Richard regardless. But there's a long list of people that reported to Richard for a short period of time. You're the only one I'm aware of that's still around, Mike. That's somewhat facetious. But again, I think that was part of Richard's excellence. It was. It really was. And honestly, tremendous legacy. What he built is historic and a legend in the industry. And like I said, most people probably have times where they didn't agree with some of the things Richard did or how he acted or the way he handled things. But you could say a lot of those things about a lot of people. And he cared so deeply for the company and took a lot of pride in what he built. 
And honestly, I am honored. Richard's wife owns the company and she is very conscious of continuing the legacy of the brand and what Upper Deck stands for. And we take a lot of pride in continuing to carry that torch. You had this tremendous media company standard of the industry, held so much responsibility in the industry and continues to today. What drove you to pivot and consider adding grading to that portfolio? I've said, I think I was the holdup. Some of my sharpest people, including Grant, you've mentioned, were recommending that we go into grading. And I was the holdup because I just thought we're doing great with our magazines and price guides and uh, online stuff. Our, Our digital presence was strong. This is going to be something that's going to cause some people to have hiccups. Hey, why are you getting into grading now? You guys should not be grading if you're pricing. And I don't think my skin was super thin or anything, but after a while, I just worked through it. I thought, wait a minute, we're already grading cards anyway. So we should have done it a couple of years earlier. I kept making them go back and tell me, how is this going to be not a copycat thing? PSA was really gaining traction. SGC was already out and about. And I just thought, I am not going to do a me too thing. We've got to have some innovation that causes people to think, hey, okay, this is another approach to grading. Still going to get really accurate grades, but we're going to do it a little bit different and we're going to do it better. And I think we did do it different and better, but PSA had a big lead, again, thanks to me being slow and their registry just got, it came, that's the juggernaut that they had. And we could never catch up on that. It was a, not a winner take all, but it was a dominant thing. I wasn't shooting for a duopoly where there are two market leaders, the Coke and Pepsi thing, because I want to be first, but we were never able to catch them in spite of our innovations and the creativity we brought to it. That was well-received. So I was the holdup. I think we probably should have done it sooner because we were always grading cards. In order to be able to evaluate and do price guides accurately, you had to know that when something sold for more than expected or less than expected, it was only because of condition. So we had to factor that in anyway. Grant and Dan and some of the guys that were involved, they stopped short of saying, hey, trust us, we got this because they knew it was a really tricky thing. I said, well, what I'm going to be impressed with is that we're doing something that's innovative that really is responsive to the needs of the industry and it's going to take grading to the next level. I think we did. We just weren't able to pass up PSA in volume. 